God, but a peace that comes to their family, knowing that their sins have been washed away, knowing that if death should come, they're ready, knowing that if the Lord should return, they're prepared. There's a peace in knowing that about our loved ones. The saddest day in life is when and if a loved one goes astray. And there is a dread that settles in on us when that takes place. And knowing that they were safe, but now they're back in the world again. Knowing that they're back in sin again. Knowing that if death should come or the Lord should return, that they're not ready for that. And it's that aspect, that day of life, that tragic day, that sad day that we're going to focus on this hour. When a loved one falls away. We want to go to Luke chapter 15, if you'll take your Bibles and open them there. You know this chapter well. You know this as the restoration chapter of the Bible. And we have the love chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. We have the resurrection chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15. And we have the restoration chapter of the Bible, and that's Luke chapter 15. That'll be our study this hour. You know that in this chapter we have three lost things. We have a lost sheep. We have a lost and we have a lost son. You know that with this development of this chapter that the loss increases from beginning to end. You know that in the first parable, the loss is one in a hundred. You know that in the second parable, it's one in ten. And in the final parable, it's one in two. You know that in the first parable, it is the loss of a dumb animal. In the second parable, it's the loss of an inanimate object, a piece of silver. In the third parable, it's the loss of a son, the loss of of a child. This is the longest story that Jesus ever told, and yet it's only 22 verses in length. It's probably the most loved story that Jesus ever told. If you were to ask people to pick a parable of our Lord, this likely would be the one that they would pick. And so we want to focus in on this chapter. And as we do so, we want to consider three points. We want to see the possibility of apostasy, number one. Number two, we want to see the pain of apostasy. And number three, we want to see the prescription for apostasy. Let's start out by talking about the possibility of apostasy. Now, we we see from the very first parable that a sheep can go astray. We see from the second parable that a coin can be lost. And we see from the third parable that a son can depart from home. We, We see that. That's the point of this chapter, is that things can be lost. And yet, the majority of the religious world of which we are familiar, they are Calvinistic. And they believe that it's impossible, once you're saved, to ever be lost. They teach the perseverance of the saints. We know that doctrine's not true. Just a sampling of verses in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Galatians 5, 4, would prove that's not true. We know that the Bible warns against falling. We know that the Bible gives examples of falling. We know that the Bible gives a prescription of what to do when someone falls. And so all of those things argue that a person can fall from grace. I wish I could tell you today that your loved one will never go astray. I wish I could tell you today that if they do go astray, that they will definitely come home. I wish I could tell you that if they go astray and they never come home, in the end they'll be saved anyway. I wish I could tell you that. I can't tell you that. You find that doctrine that's most comforting in the denominational world, you don't find it in the Bible. But there is a doctrine sometimes that we come across in the Lord's church. It's not always stated, it's just 
something that people generally believe. I understand why they believe it, and I understand the comfort that maybe it provides to them, although I don't think it's supported by the Scriptures. They'll quote verses like Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. That's a great verse. It's a great verse for parents. It's a comforting verse for parents that we should do our job in teaching and training, and that if we do, then we, we can expect these results. I think, there, there's, I think that's what that passage is teaching. But sometimes people interpret that passage in a way to suggest that it's impossible if children are trained properly for them to go astray. Sometimes it's argued that if children go astray, then the parents must have somehow failed them. The parents must have somehow failed to teach something, must have failed to do something, must have failed to set the right example. There must have been some failure on the part of the parents that led to those children, when they're grown, going astray. I've known a lot of parents over the years who have beaten themselves up over that. I know some parents over the years who have been beaten up by others with that kind of idea, that kind of teaching. But I want to show you from the parable that we're studying, the parable of the prodigal son, that in this case, I'm not arguing for every case, I'm arguing simply in this case, I don't think the father did anything wrong. And yet the son went astray. Who is the father in the parable of the prodigal son? We, we know the elder brother represents the scribes and Pharisees, right? We know that the prodigal son represents the publicans and sinners. But who does the father represent? The father represents God. So when we understand that the father in this parable is God, then, then it, it upsets the apple cart. If our interpretation of Proverbs 22 and verse 6 is that if a child is trained properly, they cannot, will not go astray, then how do we explain this parable? How do we explain a son that had the perfect father, and yet in spite of that, he went to the far country? Well, we're going to struggle with that a little bit. But I want you to think about this father. Was the father in this parable too soft? Was he too hard? Was he inconsistent? I don't think he was any of those things. I think he was, in fact, the perfect father. And yet this son still went astray. Now I want you to understand, I'm not arguing for parents who are lazy. I'm not arguing for parents who are neglectful. I'm not arguing that parenting doesn't make a difference. I'm not arguing any of those things. I'm simply saying in this case, this father was what he should have been, and yet his son still went away. There are parents who certainly contribute to their children going astray. They didn't spend any time with them. They didn't give any teaching to them. They didn't set the proper example before them. They were negligent in their responsibilities. I'm not trying to let them off the hook. What I am trying to do is to temper that just a little bit because I know sometimes there are good people that do the very best they can do, and yet still their children, not all of them usually, but maybe one of them goes astray when they're grown. And I know those parents struggle with that each and every day. Let me ask you in Genesis chapter 3, who was at fault? God, Adam, or Eve? 
Well, you wouldn't say God's at fault. God said, don't eat of this tree. He was very plain, very specific about it. They ate of that tree. Who was at fault? Well, Adam tried to blame God, right? Adam said, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave to me and I did eat. If you hadn't given me this woman, this would have never happened, God. And God said, Adam, you know what? You're right. I'm to blame. Know what God said. God held Adam's feet to the fire. Adam was guilty. Eve was guilty. They were the ones that sinned. What about all the times in Old Testament history when Israel went astray? Was that their king that led them astray? Was that God that led them astray? Or did they make choices contrary to what His will for them was? That's why they went astray. Simply want to point out the possibility of apostasy. Because I want to temper our judgment a little bit. I want us to not be quite as hard on people sometimes as we, we are. You know, whatever the case, even if I'm dealing with someone that was negligent, even if I'm dealing with someone that, that did fail in some ways, am I pointing out that failure? Am I harping on that failure? Am I, am I bringing that constantly to their attention? Is that helping? Is it helping to get that child back home? Is it going to solve the issue? Or is it maybe simply going to make the situation harder? I assure you that no one is hurting any more than the parent that has the child in the world. That parent is hurting. That parent needs compassion. That parent needs help. And that's what this lesson is designed to do, is to help in that way. So let's talk about the pain. Let's talk about the pain. Well, let me do this. I think sometimes we don't do this. Why did the prodigal son go astray? You ever really read this parable? Luke 15, 11 through 32, and try to decide in your mind what was central to his going astray. If I had to summarize it in one word, I would say ingratitude. I think that's why he went astray. He was not thankful for the blessings that he had with the Father. He took his eyes off of those blessings. I mean, this boy came from the best of homes. This boy came from a home where there was a robe and a ring and shoes. This boy came from a home where there were hired servants. This boy came from a home where there was a fatted calf. This boy came from a home where he had blessings on top of blessings. But he thought, there's something out in the world that's better than what I have right here. He took his eyes off of the blessings he already had. Why do, why do people go astray from Christ? The only way I can figure out that they do that is they have to take their eyes off of the blessings that they have in Christ. Why would anybody who has all spiritual blessings, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, give that up? Why would anybody walk away from that? Unless they have become unthankful for the blessings that are theirs. I think he was unthankful for his blessings. I think he was unthankful for the sacrifices that his father had made. i got four, four children. Jennifer reminds them pretty often, I stayed home with you. I could have been teaching in the school. I could have been doing this. I could have been... She reminds them. When they're giving her a hard time when she's trying to homeschool them, she reminds them. Listen, I, I, I gave up this to give you the one-on-one love and devotion and care that, that you needed to have. I, I did this. I made sacrifices for you. Why, why do people leave Christ and go back to the world? 
because they forget about the sacrifices that have been made for them. You don't look at Christ hanging on the cross and walk away. Titus 2 and verse 14 says, Who gave Himself for us. He gave Himself for us. Can you look at Christ, keep your eyes on the cross, and walk away? No, you've got to take your eyes off the cross. You've got to forget about the sacrifice that's been made for you if you're going to walk away. But I think there's a third thing that this young man did. And that is that this young man was unthankful for the rules that his father gave him. There are rules in this home. That seems to be why this young man wants to leave home. It seems to be why he wants to go to the far country. He wants to get away from his father and get away from the rules because he sees these rules as restricting his freedom, as inhibiting his happiness. Why do do people go into the world and, and run away from Christ and His Word? Because they think this Word is keeping them from being happy. This Word's taking away their freedom. It isn't. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 13 is a great verse. You, you need to mark it in your Bible because it's talking about God giving His law to His people. You know what the last three words of that verse say? For thy good. Why did God give these things? For your good. God didn't give these things to make your life hard. He didn't give these things to make life difficult. He didn't give these things to take away your happiness. He gave you these things because He wanted you to be happy. He gave you these things because He wanted you to be free. We run away from that and we get into sin. And sin enslaves and sin makes us miserable. You see that in this parable. 1 John 5 and verse 3 says, His commandments are not grievous. When we understand them, we understand that He's wiser than we are. He's looking out for us. He knows the road and where it leads. This young man forgot that, and so he went away. But let's talk about the pain of apostasy. First of all, I wish I could get the apostate to understand the pain of apostasy. If I could get the person who goes astray to understand the pain that that's going to bring before they go astray, they wouldn't go astray. You know, if if this young man could look back and go back and, and, and redo things, he wouldn't go to the far country. After he gets to the far country, he he ends up in the pig pen of sin. He ends up hungry, wanting the husk that the pigs are pushing to the side. He's in rags. He's doing a job that no respectable Jew would ever want to do. It's not what he thought it was going to be. If he had understood the pain of apostasy, he never would have gone to the far country. But there's more to it than that. I wish he had understood the pain that this apostasy was going to bring to his father. Because if he could have seen his father, he could have seen his father every day watching that road. He could have seen his father every day down on his knees praying for his son to come home. If he could have seen that, he would not have gone to the far country. You know, we talk about suicide and how selfish suicide is. It is. It's thinking about yourself and getting yourself out of a situation. It doesn't get you out of it, but that's the thinking. It gets you out of the situation What does it do for everybody else? It it, it brings pain and suffering for them. It's a very selfish thing. Because it doesn't consider other people and how it affects other people. Apostasy is a very selfish thing. Because it doesn't take into consideration, how is this going to affect my mom and dad? 
How is this going to affect my brothers and sisters? How is this going to affect my friends in Christ? How is this going to affect other people? Maybe they will follow me. Maybe they will do this too. You see, the apostate convinces himself, this is just me. This only affects me. I'm making a choice for me. Let me do what I want to do. Well, it affects other people. When Achan saw that goodly Babylonian garment, that gold and that silver, and he took them and he hid them in his tent, it wasn't just about Achan. It had an effect upon his family. It had an effect upon all of Israel. There were men that died as a result of that. Don't, don't ever think that there's no pain connected for other people because there is. But I want you to think about the pain that is connected with losing a loved one. What if, physically speaking, today, your child goes missing. Maybe they run away. Maybe somebody takes them, but they're missing. You go to bed tonight not knowing. Are they okay? Are they alive? Are they dead? Are they hungry? Are they scared? Are they lost? To go to bed tonight not knowing those things. You know, we stay up when our kids are out when they're not home, waiting for them to come home because we really can't sleep very well until they're in the house. We keep the cell phone turned on because they're out and they might need to call and we want to take that call. Can you imagine a child being out there and not knowing where they are? Mary, a lady named Mary Lou Walker, had a son that ran away from home. And he was gone for about three weeks before the telephone rang. The voice on the other end said, Can I come home? And she wrote this song based upon her own experience. It's called Runaway. If I ran away today and if I made you cry, if I traveled far and wide and never told you why, if I found that times were hard and I was all alone, could I still come home to you? Could I still come home? Could I knock upon your door and would you let me in? Would you be glad to see me no matter where I'd been? So long, so long away from home. So long, so long away from home. If you ran away today, if you made me cry, if you traveled far and wide and never told me why, if you found that times were hard and you were all alone, I'd hope that you'd come home, my child. I'd hope that you'd come home. You could knock upon my door and I'd run to let you in. I'd be so glad to see you no matter where you'd been. So glad, so glad to have you home again. So glad, so glad to have you home. I think every parent feels that way. Every parent says, I don't want you to run away. I don't want you to ever be in that kind of situation or that kind of danger. But if you are, call. If you are, let me know. If you are, come home. I don't care what you've done. Just come home. We'll work it out. We'll find a solution. We'll find a way. But come home. Why? Because that parent feels pain every day that child is away. This father in this parable is God. And God feels pain when His children are away. You know, you look at the context of this, Luke 15 and verse 20, their their context there. What's the father doing? He's watching the road. Very likely, he's watching the very road that his son traveled down leaving home. He's watching, hoping one day, hoping one day that he's going to see that boy coming back down that road. You ever picture a parent 
at services. They're sitting in their car in the parking lot, the church parking lot. What are they doing? What are they doing just sitting there? They're watching cars come in, one right after the other. You know what a parent might be doing? Hoping they're going to see their child's car turn it that drive. Hoping today's the day their, their child comes back to church. Parent walks in services, finds their seat on the pew. What do they do? They kind of glance back. Quick scan of the people that are there, hoping someday that child's going to walk in those back doors, going to walk down to that front pew, going to get their life straightened out. That's this father in this parable, he's watching, he's watching the road. And then one day, it happens. One day, there's somebody coming down the road. And this boy must have changed. He, 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 he was probably a lot heavier when he left home than he is now. His clothes are now rags. He's dirty. He's physically tired and worn down. This father recognizes him. This father knows this boy. He's looking through the te- telescope of his love. He recognizes this boy's gait anywhere. He, that's my son. What does the father do? He runs to meet him. This boy's father is a man of some age. But he's running. He's running. Why is he running? Because he wants to close the distance. He's been wanting to close the distance from the day the child went away. He's been wanting them to be reconciled since that very first day. He's been praying for this. He's been longing for this. He's been looking for this. And now today is the day and he's running and he's got compassion. When he gets to his boy, he doesn't even stop. Uh, Let me explain that in the Greek. He hugs him down. He hugs him. He takes him to the ground with a hug. This father's running. When he gets to his boy, he just grabs him and they go down to the ground together. So glad to have him home. Lavishing him with kisses. Lavishing him with hugs. So glad to have his son home again. It tells me this father had experienced a lot of pain when this boy was away. But I want you to think about something else. He had a fatted calf because when the son comes home and the son admits to his sin, father immediately starts calling for the servants, asking them to... Go bring the robe, go bring the ring, go bring the shoes, full restoration. And he wants the fatted calf to be killed. Now that, that to us, that doesn't say a lot. But to them, that would have said a lot. First of all, only the rich had a fatted calf. Poor people didn't have one. You, you were just struggling to get by day by day. If you had a calf that you just kind of set aside for a special occasion, and you were fattening that calf up, that said something about your wealth. His father's got some means. Why does he have this fatted calf set aside? Well, maybe the oldest son's getting married. That's a possibility. But I think there's another reason. I think there's another reason why this father has this fatted calf. This father has been anticipating the day, wanting the day, longing the day when his son comes home. And he wants to be ready. And he is. If your child is away, your loved one is away, I want you to go ahead and make preparation for the day they come home. Say, well, what if they don't? What if they never come back? 
make preparation for them to come back. We need to live in hope. We need to live in anticipation. We often get what we're looking for. We often get what we're hoping for. We pray. We want God to answer. We're asking God to do certain things. Pray with with the faith that God can and will do something. Live in hope. Live in anticipation of this person coming home. This father was living that way. I want you to think about the pain that he felt. This is the pain that others in the Bible felt. You ever thought about Genesis chapter 37? With Jacob? Now, Jacob wasn't perfect as a father. You know that. You know he preferred Joseph and Benjamin over all the other boys. And that caused some problems. And the brothers were instrumental in Joseph's going away. They were going to kill him, but ended up selling him. And then they brought his garment home, this coat of many colors, this coat of the overseer. They brought it home to the father, torn and bloody. They let the father reach his own conclusion. He's been devoured by some beast. Remember what Jacob's reaction was to that? The Bible says that he mourned many days and would not be comforted. In fact, years go by, and it's, they go to Egypt to buy grain, and eventually it gets to the point to where Joseph is in charge of this, of course, and Joseph says, you've got to bring your younger brother. Well, what's Jacob's reaction to that? You're not taking Benjamin. I've already lost Joseph. You're not taking Benjamin. But if we don't take Benjamin, they're not going. we've got to take him. Jacob was reluctant to ever let that happen. He's still grieving pain years later from this. What about 2 Samuel 18, verse 32, with David and Absalom? Absalom was pampered. Absalom was adored by the people. He stole the hearts of the people. He stole the kingdom from his father. He, he, he caused his father to flee from the capital city. How did David feel? Here's his son doing the wrong thing. Here's his son that's gone astray from God. All David cares about is the young man. Is he safe? Is he okay? And the news comes from the battlefield. The messengers think this is good news. The one who's rebelled, he's been put down. The rebellion's over. David, you're back king again. That's not how David sees it. Because this is David's son. This is the pain of one who has a prodigal. And David says, Oh, Absalom, my son. Oh, Absalom, would to God that I had died for thee. I wish it had been me instead of you, Absalom. Every parent of a prodigal says, I wish it was me instead of you. That's the father's love. That's the mother's love. That's the love of a loved one that they say, I wish it was me instead of you. Is that not what Paul said? I wouldn't be accursed for you. That's loving somebody. It's loving. That's the pain that comes to one who has a prodigal. But let's talk about the prescription. We want to get here. So I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about this. The ultimate goal is restoration. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So the goal is restoration. The word restore is a beautiful word in the Greek. It's a word that refers to the setting of a bone. 
if you've ever broken a bone and gone to the doctor, then, then you know how you wanted the doctor to handle that bone. You didn't want the doctor to take that arm and twist it or turn it or pull it. You wanted him to support it. You wanted him to be just as gentle and tender as he could because it hurt. People that have gone astray, they're hurting. I don't know all the reasons they're hurting, but they're hurting. They need someone to come and be tender and gentle with them. They need someone to consider how they would want to be treated. They want someone who's going to be meek with them and helping to restore them. That's what this verse is talking about. That's this conversion, James 5, 19 and 20, and covering of a multitude of sins. That's what we're talking about. How, how do we bring that about? First of all, let me say that we try to prevent it. We don't talk enough about preventing apostasy. We need to try to prevent it. You know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, so we try to keep people from ever going astray. But there's more to it than just trying to keep them from going astray. They're setting an atmosphere, a condition to where if they do go astray, that the likelihood is they'll come back. Let me explain what I mean by that. When this prodigal son gets in the far country, and when he's in the pig pen... When he's hit rock bottom, he remembers home. He came to himself is the way the King James says it. He's in his right mind again. You know, so there's a madness connected with sin. And now he's thinking clearly again. And when he's thinking clearly again, what does he think? What does he think about? He thinks about home. What does he think about home? Well, he, he thinks about the hired servants in his father's house. And how that they have bread and despair. His father's a good man. His father takes care not only of his family, he takes care of the servants and of the hired servants. The hired servants were just the day workers. Even the day workers had more than enough. He took care of them. So what's this boy thinking? This boy's thinking, you know, if the hired servants in my father's house have bread and despair, and I'm a hired servant for this Roman, and I don't even have food, you know what? I'm going home. You know what's bringing this boy home? The remembrance that he has of home and how good home really was now that he's thinking about it. Someone described it this way. He goes and he knocks on the pig farmer's door. And he announces to the pig farmer, I'm going home. And the pig farmer kind of laughs. He says, your father will take one look at you. Your father will take one whiff of you. And he'll send you right back. The boy says, you don't know my father. If you're, a far, if you're astray in the far country, if you remember anything about the father and who he is, you'll come home. You'll come home. Because he's good. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 talks about the goodness of God leading us to repentance. We want to create an environment at home. We want to create an environment in the local congregation that when and if someone goes astray, when they come to themselves, and we hope the day will come when they do, when they come to themselves, they will remember the goodness of God's family. And they'll want to come back to that family. But I'll tell you what we do. We're a little bit like the nursery rhyme, Little Bo Peep. Little Bo Peep has lost her sheep, doesn't know where to find them. Leave them alone and they'll come home wagging their tails behind them. That's our philosophy. Just leave them alone. They chose to leave. They chose to go back in the world. Just leave them alone and they'll come home. Most of the time they won't come home if that's our attitude. Because if that's our attitude, we didn't create an environment where they want to come back. 
You know, we, we complain about church discipline, not practicing church discipline. I understand we need to. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, 1 Corinthians 5, I understand that. But in order for church discipline to work for the one who's gone astray, it works anyway because it works for the church, keeping the church pure. But I'm talking about for the one that's gone astray, if it's going to work for that person, you know what? There has to be something that's missed. There has to be a loving family. There has to be a closeness between brothers and sisters. There has to be a closeness between elders and preachers and members in order for that person to want to come back. If we don't create that environment, we're going to have a hard time ever convincing the prodigal to come home. This prodigal wanted to come home. His brother wasn't perfect. In fact, his brother was rather selfish, rather prideful, rather angry. First of all, we try to prevent them from going astray. We try to prepare an environment where they want to come home. I think we pray. James 5 and verse 16 says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, God's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Ephesians 3 and verse 20. If my loved one's astray every day, I'm praying. I'm praying without ceasing. I'm asking God for a door of utterance. I'm asking God to give me the opportunity to talk to them, the opportunity to try to plead and beg them to come home. Pleading's a part of it. Pleading's a part of it. Paul says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 11. He was pleading with Felix, reasoning of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. He was pleading with Agrippa, Almost thou persuadest me. Paul was trying to persuade him to be a Christian. Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. We need to be pleading and begging. If you had a child in a house, and that house was on fire, and you were trying to get them to come out, would you stop talking? Would you stop pleading? Would you stop begging? Would you stop trying to find a way? Or would you, you talk until your voice was gone? Trying to help them to find their way out. You got someone lost in the world. Don't quit talking. And I, I know that there are times where maybe they have to be one without the word. First Peter chapter three and verses one and two. But I think even in that situation, I'm asking for the time and the opportunity to be able to talk again, begging and pleading for that. And let me suggest some other things that I would do. I would pursue them. And I would get other people to pursue them. We need to enlist help. If I had a lost child, I'm going to hunt for them, but I'm going to ask everybody else that I know to hunt for them too. I'm going to get as many people involved as I can get involved because they, there may be sometimes, there, there may be a wall that goes up between a parent and a child, or between a brother or a sister or someone, where an outsider can come and they'll be nicer to them, they'll be more receptive to them, they'll listen to them. Listen, I'm not ashamed to ask somebody else to help. If it accomplishes at the end of the day what I need accomplished, and this my loved one to come back, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to do that. I pray that your children, I pray that your loved ones all remain faithful to God. That's not a guarantee. Not a guarantee for any of us. And knowing that it's not a guarantee for any of us, we have to prepare for what to do, when, and if that happens. We don't want to be caught without a plan. We don't want to be caught with, what do I do now? We're trying to prevent it. 
We're trying to create an environment right now that would make them want to come back, want to be a part of it. Let me end with this story, story from Mission Field. I was in Peru, first mission trip I ever took, I took to Peru. I met a lady there named Rosa. Rosa has a hard family life. Her husband is a womanizer, drinker, just not what he needs to be. She's a Christian. She struggles. She tries. She was faithful the first time I was there. The next time I went back, she wasn't there. And I got to looking for her. Found out from the brethren that she'd quit attending. And I said, set an appointment. We're going to go visit Rosa. So we did. Went out to Rosa's house. And I have my iPad with me usually when I'm in the mission field. And I have pictures of all the mission trips on there. And I had pictures from that first trip to Peru. where I met Rosa. And at that time, we had celebrated Rosa's birthday. And they have a unique birthday customs. They, they take an egg and they crack it over the head of the person that's celebrating the birthday. And then they throw flour in their hair. That's part of the celebration. Now, that would be bad in our country, but in that country we don't have any water pressure. It's really bad because how are you getting that egg and that flour out of your hair? But it's the way they celebrate it. I had pictures of that and so I showed her those pictures. and I showed her pictures of her brothers and sisters in Christ. And What am I doing? I'm trying to remind her, Rosa, you've got a family. That family misses you. That family wants you back. Don't you love them? They love you. So I asked Rosa some questions. I asked her why she had gone astray. And she began to make excuses. She began to say, well, you know, it, it, it's a long way to the church building. It cost a lot of money to get a ride to the church building. I knew both of those things had a little bit of truth in them. It was a distance too far to walk, and there was money that she probably didn't have. But I asked her a question. I said, I said, Rosa, how far did Christ come for you? And how much did it cost Him? She didn't have an answer for either one of those two questions. Because she knew He'd come from heaven to earth and she knew that He'd given His life on that cross for her. You can't argue with that. You can't argue with that tonight. You can't argue with it. If you keep in mind the blessings, you keep in mind the sacrifices, you keep in mind that everything He tells us is for our good, then how can you stay away? How can you not come home? Do I need to offer the invitation? Okay. Thank you very much for your attention.